gardening. So all the information is on the website, and also look out for an email this week with a few more details regarding that wonderful time for you to get together. Ladies and some men, obviously, as Nikki said, some guys want to interested in doing that with your wives or just coming in, that'd be great. Well, let's stand and prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through singing today. We have the opportunity to worship our Lord. We've got to read some verses here this morning from Psalm chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Let's worship him this morning. Yeah. 
stand before you as we think about it in your word, as we pray about it, as we sing about it, Lord, you would capture our hearts with awe and wonder for who you are and all that you've done for us. So you get all the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. We have the privilege this morning of having with us for just a brief introduction, Pastor Condi from Malawi. Pastor Condi, come on up here. He is a longtime friend of Brad Pogue, one of our newer members from this past year. And Pastor Condi is here. He's doing a missions lunch for us after the service today. I want to remind those who signed up, that'll be in the youth room after the service. But I've asked him to come. Just take a few minutes and tell you who he is and his ministry there as he's a pastor of a church but also as well as he teaches other pastors and trains pastors in Malawi. So Pastor Kandi, welcome to Gateway today. Oh, okay. Thank you very much for the opportunity that I can share a little bit uh, of what, we are, what the Lord is doing in, um, in Malawi. And uh, this song that we have just sung, just describes what uh, we are trying to do there in Malawi. Uh, it, uh, all I have is Christ. So I come from Malawi, not Maui. <laughs> That's in Africa. And uh, it's like uh, one of the poorest countries in the world. And this song just is, is exactly what we need. And that's what has been uh, pushing us to planting the church that we are at right now, it's called Grace Bible Church. And the question that uh, most people, they ask is that why another church when we've got so many churches? So the churches that we have in Malawi, they, their focus is to reach the physical part of a person. And then, uh, so what? After you've reached the physical part of a person, what then? Because after this life, there is another life. And then we have to prepare for that life. And that's why all what we need is Christ. And there are so many churches that are just, push, they're pushing so much on the physical aspect of a person. They will say that you will never, if you get sick, it is always from the devil. If you are hungry, it is always from the devil. And that's so you, they, they are encouraging people to accumulate as much worth as they can. And after that, they die. And then they face their maker and they regret it. So our goal is to bring the people to the word of God so that they can be able to say that all I have is Christ because that's exactly what we need. And uh, at Grace Bible Church, there, for a long time it's just been me uh, leading the church and by the grace of God there are two men the Lord has brought to us and our, um, what we can ask from you brothers and sisters here, uh, even though you don't know these guys, is that you would pray for them. Because we are on the verge of uh, bringing them into the eldership. And then we pray that, uh, we ask you to help us pray that these guys will have the hunger to bring the people to the Lord. And what has caused a lot of people to focus on the physical aspect of it in Malawi, like to just be reaching out to the physical, is because uh, we don't have trained leaders. So you've got a lot of churches but they are being led by people who have never, who have no idea what the Bible says. So you just wake up one morning and say that I'm a pastor. And you, tell, you ask them, where's Genesis? And they'll be going to the Revelation. And they don't even care. I mean, they, they, they are not trained. So that's why we are involved also in bringing out all those leaders and just to teach them the basics of what the Bible teaches. 
So it'll be great if, uh, if you have time that we can talk about that after lunch. But I'm so grateful that the brothers, you guys, who love Jesus Christ, would be, uh, would have an opportunity even to listen to what I'm saying. And then after you have listened, maybe tonight at, at your home, you can pray for Malawi, you can pray for our family, and you can pray for what the Lord is doing over there. Thank you very much. God bless you. Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh God, we are a needy people. Lord, in so many ways, yes, physically, as Condi was sharing, but Lord, we are spiritually in great need. Thank you, Christ, for coming. Thank you for your great salvation through the gospel. Lord, that you are now our high priest so that we may enter boldly into the throne room of God and find grace in our time of need and mercy. Oh, Lord, we are such a privileged people to live on this side of the cross. Jesus, would you ignite our hearts with great affection for you, with great passion for you. Lord, would you help us to focus on you with everything that we are? Lord, that we would actually pray without ceasing. Lord, that we would rejoice always and that we would in everything give thanks for that is your will for us in Christ. And Lord, we do bring needs before you today. Lord, we just want to pray for Lord, marriages in our church. Lord, we know that you are the designer of marriage. Lord, as a reflection, as a parable of the gospel, to tell the story of the love of Christ for his church and the church's response and love for their Savior. Lord, thank you for the privilege of having that as the high calling of marriage. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen marriages. I pray that marriages that are struggling, Lord, God, would you reach in and do what only you can do in the hearts of husbands and wives. Lord, if there are those that need help, Lord, that just need someone to listen, I pray that you would have them reach out, Lord, humble themselves. Lord, we all need help in our marriages, all of us. I need help. Lord, we want to get that right. Would you, would you help us, Lord, in that area? Lord, we do thank you for Fisher's Farm, the ministry. Thank you for Jeff and Jennifer and their hearts for, Lord, for you first and foremost, how the gospel has come to them and now it's going through them to these men who come. And thank you for the transformed lives that we've seen. Lord, the names are all in my heart and mind and I'm just so grateful, Lord, to see men who are walking with you. 
Lord, we pray more and more, Lord, the gospel would transform these men as they spend time at Fisher's Farm. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray locally for uh, Pastor Doug McCurry at Legacy Anglican Church on Bell Road. God, we thank you that we can pray for our sister churches here locally, Lord, that we can ask for your blessing. I pray for your blessing on, on Doug and, and their church. I pray, Lord, as a pastor, Lord, you would, uh, Lord, you would give him power, Lord, to lead this church, grace to shepherd this church. Lord, I pray this would be a church that is vibrantly in love with you, uh, Lord, that is walking in the gospel. Lord, we thank you for being able to hear a little bit from Condi and that we'll get to hear later. And Lord, just pray for his church in Malawi. God, just pray you'd be growing that church as new people come to Christ. I pray you would be bringing uh, the right people alongside Condi to, to help shepherd the flock as he's asked us to pray for these potential elders. And Lord, we just pray that your spirit would be at work Lord, as, as the laborers, Lord, are, are few, Lord, we beseech you to send more laborers. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness to our church. Lord, in every way, spiritually, you provide for every need that we have. And we just want to say thank you, God, that we acknowledge that it all comes from your hand. And Lord, we just pray today as Grady comes to share your word. Lord, I pray your word would penetrate deeply into our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be listening in the power of the Spirit and that Grady as he teaches, Lord, would be teaching in the power of the Spirit. And Lord, that we would leave this place changed by the Word of God. Just thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And boys and girls, first to fourth grade, you're dismissed to kids' worship. First to fourth graders, head to kids' worship. Now, while they're going, Pastor Condi, I just want to echo what's already been said and prayed. We're so thankful for your ministry in Malawi and grateful to get to hear a little bit. We will be praying for you as a church individually, so thank you for sharing that with us. And I look forward to hearing more from you at lunch today. Why don't you find 1 Peter chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word? 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, if you're visiting with us or new to Gateway, we're working verse by verse through this letter of 1 Peter. We're 35 weeks into it right now, and we're in the middle of a section on suffering we spent many weeks looking at Peter's teaching on suffering because Peter is preparing us for the reality of suffering and trials and hardships in a broken world. Now, to help us do that last week in what were obviously some very strange and challenging verses, he was preparing us for suffering by showing us that Jesus is victorious over all evil. And so last week we honed in on that truth that Jesus has victory over all evil. And he shares that to people who are suffering to remind us that if the one who is victorious over evil is holding us, then nothing can take us from him. It's a source of comfort. It's a source of joy for us in the midst of the hardships of life that God is holding us. Now, the verses we come to today are continuing to prepare us for sufferings and this life. And to do so, Peter's going to do so once again in a bit of a strange way. He's going to prepare us for suffering by talking about baptism. Now, when you have a Christian friend who is in the middle of a trial and facing hardships, my guess is your go-to response from this is probably not to say, hey, let's talk about baptism right now. 
That's probably not what you do when a friend is hurting and struggling, but that's exactly what Peter does here. He's going to talk about baptism to help us learn how to stand firm in God's grace even when life is hard. Now, friends, as we approach this topic of baptism and suffering and this connection that Peter's making, we need to realize that there's three distinct groups of people in this room today. Some of you are followers of Jesus who have been baptized. This is a text that is to drive you to remember your baptism, but more than that, to remember the truth your baptism communicated, to point you to hope and suffering, to those truths that you professed when you first followed Christ. That is the group that Peter is primarily addressing here, so as we work through the text, realize that's going to be the focus of what we're seeing in these verses. With that said, though, I realize there are some of you here who believe in Christ and have trusted in Christ, but you've never been baptized. This text, the application, is going to be a little bit different for you, because, friends, baptism is the way a follower of Christ publicly professes Christ. You don't profess Christ by walking down an aisle and shaking the pastor's hand at the end of a service. Your profession of faith is not posting it on Instagram and social media. The way in the New Testament we're commanded to profess our faith in Christ is through the waters of believers' baptism. So this text is important for you, too, because there's a call to you to realize that baptism is so important. It's not only a profession of faith, but it's the very thing that Peter points you to remember to help you stand firm in grace in the midst of the sufferings of this life. Yet I recognize here in this room, there are some of you who've never believed in Christ. You may be a child, you may be a teen, you may be an adult, you may even have been baptized, but there's no true saving faith, the type of saving faith Peter's showing us that transforms us and changes us. Friends, if you've gotten wet in a baptismal and your life is not any different because of Christ, you were never saved to begin with. And so for you, if that is you this morning, this text is a serious reminder of who God is, what God offers to you, but it's also a serious warning here what will happen to you if you continue in your life not trusting in Christ for your salvation. I pray for those of you like that, this text will awaken you today to your need for Christ. So before we move on and unpack these verses, I want to ask you, which are you? Are you a believer who has been baptized, who will be able to look at Peter's teaching and go, yes, I see the hope. I see how this will help me in suffering. Are you a believer who goes, okay, I trust Christ, but I've never been baptized. I'm missing something Christ has called me to do that should give me hope in my sufferings. Are you one here who's going, you know, honestly, Grady, I don't think I've ever trusted Christ. Which one are you? Today, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 22. It's in the middle of this section on suffering. And we see today how baptism points us to finding hope in our suffering. So as we read verses 20 to 22 today, I want you to look for what is the truth that baptism reminds us of. Now, baptism reminds us of a lot of things, but what is the truth that Peter's honing in on here that our baptism is to remind us of? And how does that truth help us suffer well? How does that truth give us hope in our sufferings? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 22. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God, we have God's very words of life right before our eyes this morning. First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 22, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we are grateful for your unchanging word. And Lord, even as we continue through what are challenging verses in 1 Peter, we're thankful that you've given to us all of this revelation. The parts that are easy for us to understand, the parts that are challenging, we know they're all good for us. So I ask this morning as we work through this text, God, you would give us eyes of faith to see you for who you are, to have our hearts stirred, to see your greatness and your power, and Lord, ultimately to find hope in what only you can do for us that we could never do ourselves. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would be held up, that you would be magnified, that we would see your greatness and it would lead us to a place to bow before you in worship of you because you deserve all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. <clears throat> There's a key truth about Jesus here that's gonna undergird this whole passage. And regardless of what group you're in, whether you're a believer who's been baptized, a believer who's not yet been baptized, or an unbeliever, there's one key truth that we all need to see in this text. And the key idea of this text is Jesus is all-powerful. If you want just a few words to summarize what Peter's trying to do in this text on baptism, it's that Jesus is all-powerful. Now, the big word we use for this, you've heard before if you've been around Gateway, is the word omnipotent. Omni, all, potence, power. Omnipotent, all-powerful, that Jesus is all-powerful. That means Jesus always does whatever he decides to do. That means nothing can stop him. Nothing is impossible for him. His will will always happen. That means Jesus has never once said or thought, well, at least I tried. Maybe I'll get it next time. Those type things we say Jesus never has to say because he is all-powerful. His will has never once been thwarted. Now, I want you to see that truth all throughout these verses here. But before we see it here, I want to give a warning to those of us who know Christ. There's a caution for us here. We speak often about God's great power. And most of us here can probably give the right answer. Is God powerful? I assume most of you could probably affirm by now, oh yes, God is all powerful. And friends, that's our confessional theology, what we confess to believe. And that is good. We want to be a church that's confessional, that affirms right doctrine and sound teaching. That is important. But the question for us this morning is not just can we say that Jesus is all-powerful, but do our lives show we actually believe Jesus is all-powerful? It's one thing for us to say it. It's another thing for us to live like we really believe he is all-powerful. That's what we would call our functional theology. What we really believe is reflected in how we live. And so, friends, as we read these verses and work through them this morning, the question for you is not can I give the right answer? Yes, Jesus is all-powerful. The question is, does my life reflect a belief that God is on his throne and Jesus is powerful over everything? That's the question I want you to ask yourself as we look at it this morning. Now, Peter's going to show us five areas where we see Jesus's great power here. Five areas where we see the power of Jesus on display in this text. Here's the first one. Jesus has power over death. That Jesus has power over death. This, is, this passage we're in today is the third time that Peter has directly talked about Jesus in his letter. In these three chapters we've worked through, he's brought up Jesus in direct ways three times. This one is notably different. In the previous two, in chapters one and two, he focused on Jesus' sufferings and his death, how his sufferings were an example to us, how his death has forgiven us of our sins. But these verses focus instead on Jesus' power over death, his victory over death. Now, we saw this last week, but let's look back at the passage we worked through last week, verses 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. And I'll just stop there. That's been the focus of the previous text about Christ in 1 Peter. But he, he changes the focus. But made alive 
in the Spirit. That's his resurrection. Then verse 19, in which he went, we saw last week, that's his ascension, and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So we saw last week Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended, and he proclaimed his victory over demonic forces. He defeated death. That's so important in this text that Peter's going to repeat it again today. Go to verse 21 and notice that last phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then verse 22, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God. Again, a reference to his resurrection and his ascension that death could not stop Jesus. He's omnipotent and even death could not stop him. He is all-powerful. Now, friends, that reality of Jesus's power over death is why you and I have assurance that death is not the last word in our lives also. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and has power over death assures us that death does not have the last word in our lives. John chapter 11, verse 25. This is Jesus speaking to Martha. Familiar story for many of you after her brother Lazarus had died. And Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So Jesus has power over death. He conquered death himself. And for those who are united to him, who are in Christ, we have the assurance that his power over death gives us victory as well. So the question for you, friends, is does your life show you actually believe Jesus has conquered death? Does your life show that you really believe he has victory over death, so much so that you're free from the fear of death? So much so you're free from the sufferings of this life, even if they lead to death, because you know that in Christ you will one day rise also. Jesus has power over death. Do we live like we really believe that? There's a second area where we see Jesus' great power here. In this text, it shows us that Jesus has power over Satan and demons. Jesus has power over Satan and demons. Now, when we start talking about this topic, we call it spiritual warfare. There's a lot of dangers in the way the American church approaches this. If you do a reading on this topic, we often end up with something that looks more like Star Wars in the Bible, where you have these two competing forces of good and evil, and you're never quite sure who's going to win in the end. That's not the picture of Scripture. What Scripture shows us is Jesus is all-powerful, including over all spiritual beings. Satan and demons are not free agents that get to do whatever they want to do. They are under the sovereign hand of God. Now, we saw this last week in our text in verse 19. Go back to that. In which he, Jesus, went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, if you remember from last week, prison was not a literal place. Prison were those boundaries that God puts over what Satan and the demons can do. God sets the limits, and the, Satan and demons cower in fear at the sovereign power of God who says, you can only go that far. And there we saw in verse 19 that Jesus proclaims to these spirits, these demons who are under restraint, because he triumphs over them. He has victory over them. He will judge them. Friends, God is all-powerful. Satan is not. God is sovereign. Satan is not. God is the one who has all power. And that idea is so important. Peter's going to repeat it here just a few verses later in verse 22. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven. Again, his ascension. He's at the right hand of God. Notice this with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, when you see in Scripture angels, authorities, and powers, these are all synonyms to describe demonic beings. For example, Ephesians 6, verse 12, this classic text on the spiritual realm we're told we as believers do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against just other people, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when Peter is referencing for us that Jesus has subjected angels, authorities, and powers, he's talking about demonic 
beings. Now, quick aside here, friends. Some people get really hung up trying to differentiate what these things are. Scripture doesn't tell us, so it doesn't really help for us to speculate over the difference between cosmic powers and authorities and rulers. If God wants to know, he would have told us. Simply, these are terms in Scripture to remind us that there are demons who hate God and who oppose us. But these angels, these demons who had rebelled against God but did not win, they're not powerful like God is. What did Jesus do to them? Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 tells us, he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. Remember, shame in Scripture is judgment. He judged them by triumphing over them. That's the very idea that Peter is bringing out in our text today. Go back to verse 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. In other words, demons having been subjected to him. These spiritual beings are subjected to Christ. This is an image from war. When someone conquers a land, the people are subjected to the rule of another. This means they are defeated. They were defeated because their attempt to stop redemption failed. Jesus died and rose again, and so his plan for redemption failed. But it also means for you, friends, if you are in Christ, the attempts of the demonic realm to destroy your faith will fail as well. Because you're in Christ and being held by him. Because your faith in God is not dependent upon your wisdom or your strength holding on to God. It's God's strong hand, all-powerful hand holding you. Therefore, if you're in Christ, you have this incredible promise. Romans 8, 38 and 39. We saw this one. For I'm sure, this is what we sang earlier. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us and the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, there are demonic beings that want their best to separate you from Christ. They can't because God is all-powerful. They are not, and you are being held by God. That also means, because what we saw last week, that God restrains them. He has them in prison in this restraint. He will not let them tempt you in any way beyond what you can resist by his grace. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this is a promise that we need to cling to as believers. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Friends, do you realize what that means? There's things that Satan wants to tempt you with, and God says, no, you can't go there with this person. That means any temptation you and I face, God has deemed we have the ability in his power and his strength to resist. That means Satan can never make us do anything, friends. We are in Christ. God is all-powerful. The one holding us is all-power has given us a way out. We are not bound to follow Satan's strategy. So, friends, the question again for you is not can you affirm this with your words, but does your life show a steady confidence and a steady hope that you are secure in Christ? So secure that Satan's schemes to separate you from Christ you know will never work and so secure in Christ that you know those temptations do not have to prevail over you. Therefore, you long for and you look for that way of escape, knowing God gives it to you when those temptations come. Because Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over Satan and all demons. The question is, are we relying on that power? But there's a third area where we see Jesus' power here. This is an area that, honestly, our culture despises. It's an area that, tragically, many churches here I suspect in Malawi also have abandoned as well. And that is that Jesus has the power to judge people. Jesus has the power to judge people. Now, just a quick pause here. I mentioned at the beginning, all of us are in one of those three groups. There's some in this room very likely who do not know Christ yet. 
This is a sobering reminder to you. If you are not confident in God's grace has saved you, this is what is coming for you. You must not lose sight of this. I pray this will draw your heart to the Lord. Look at verse 20 here. Because they formerly did not obey, that's the demons, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter's pointing us back to the flood, the time of Noah. And Peter points out here that only a few were saved. Literally only eight were saved here. Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Now, friends, when we hear that, we think of the positive, oh good, God saved him. Don't miss the fact the entire rest of the world was not saved. We're not talking about a few people. We're talking about millions and millions and millions of people were destroyed. Now, this is where our kids' story Bibles do not do justice for us. And all our little kids' toys of Noah Ark and all those things do not do justice to the picture of judgment that comes with this. Our kids' stories honestly miss the reality of the screaming souls around the Ark, banging on the door wanting to get in, but God's closed the door. The stories miss the fact that judgment has come and millions perish in the judgment of a holy God. Noah and the ark that Peter's pointing to here is not a cute story for us. It's a story to remind us God does not wink at sin. It reminds us that God is holy and those who do not repent and believe in him will be judged by him as do the untold millions in the time of Noah. He has the right and he has the power to do so. Genesis 6 brings us out. Genesis 6, 12 and 13. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt, it was full of sin, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. Okay, there's not a few people here in one little city. This is the entire globe, all the continents wiped out apart from eight people. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, the millions, with the earth. And then a few verses later in verse 17 of Genesis 6, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God has the power to judge, and he was able to do it. He could speak in the fountains of the deep open, and millions die under the judgment of a holy God for their sin and rebellion against him. But that was not just a one-time thing in the flood. God still continues to judge all those who do not love him and worship him and live for him. John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus tells us these sobering words, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey the Son, notice the change in words there to show us that if we really know Christ, our lives are different. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, if you are not in Christ, it's not just that future judgment is coming. Judgment is already upon you. The wrath of God remains on that person, and that wrath will be manifested in the last day. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. This is terrifying as we look to the end of time. Jesus will separate those who believe and those who not. And he'll say to those on his left, these are those who do not believe in him, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because Jesus has the power to judge, and he still does, and he still will. So the question for us is, do our lives show we really believe he has the power to do that? Do our lives show we so believe in his power to judge that we are in awe of the fact that we have been rescued from that judgment we deserve, that we're some of the few who have been saved by him? Are we in awe of that? Do we so believe he has the power to judge that we hate the sin in our life that sent Christ to the cross? Are we so in awe of his power to judge that we plead with the lost that we know because we know the fate that awaits them when they encounter a holy God face to face? Do we really believe that Jesus has the power to judge and will do so? So Jesus has power over death. He has power over Satan and demons. He has power to judge people. Fourth one here I want you to see in this text. This is all-encompassing. He literally has power over everything. Something that Peter brings out for us. He has power over literally 
everything. And the big word you hear us use around here is God's sovereignty. That God has the right to rule everything, to determine everything that happens, and he has the power to do so. Now, where do we see that here? That's in verse 22. Jesus Christ, who is going into heaven, and here it is, he is at the right hand of God. Now, don't skip that phrase, friends. This is not just about mere location. This is a description of Jesus' great power. In the ancient world, whoever sat at the right hand of the king had the king's authority and the king's power to act. So if you went up to a king in the ancient world at the time Peter wrote, and there was a person at the right hand of the king, that person had all the power and the authority of the king to do what he saw fit. So when it tells us Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, it is showing us he has the right to rule and he has the power to rule as well. I love how Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 describes this for us. He, Jesus, is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Notice this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, what he did on the cross for us, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has power over literally everything. The only reason the sun is shining today is because Jesus is upholding it. The only reason my heart is beating and your heart is beating is because Jesus is upholding it. The only reason anything happens is because Jesus is the one at the right hand of the Father upholding it all, doing it all, because he has the right to sovereignly rule over absolutely everything. Friends, that's not just some random theological construct for us. Jesus' power over everything is why you and I have the promise. Remember, he's writing to people who are suffering here, but we have the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, how many things? How many? All things work together. All things here, friends, includes the sicknesses we go through, the hardships we go through, the pain we go through, the persecutions we go through, the suffering we go through. God's never promised to deliver us in this life from those things, but rather he's promised that all those things, even the hard things, work together for what? For good. God is sovereign. If he was not sovereign, that promise would not be true. But he is sovereign. He's ruling over everything. He's holding the sun. He's holding my heart. He's holding your life. He's even holding our trial so that everything in our life and his sovereign rule works together to bring about good. Good for God's glory. Good for us to grow in our walk with him. That means, friends, we can affirm that God is powerful over everything, including our suffering. So again, the question for us is, can we, can we say, is Jesus all-powerful? Sure. But friends, when life gets hard, when the sicknesses come and the trials come and the hardships come and the friends turn on us and people oppose you for your faith, does your life show you really, really deep down believe God has control of history, God has control of your life, and God has control of even your sufferings? Were we an anxious people, a worried people, a stressed people, people trying to cling to control everything and everyone around us, hoping in our own power to somehow make it work out? Or do we really believe God is holding everything at the word of his power. Jesus has power over death. He has power over demons. He has the power to judge. He has the power of literally everything. He is sovereign. But there's one more. There's one last one in this text. And this is where the baptism connection comes in that Peter's talking about. Number five, Jesus has the power to save. Jesus has the power to save. The one who has the power to judge also has the power to save. Look at verse 21. Again, this is a little bit of a strange verse, but look at what Peter tells us here. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, to understand what Peter is saying here, we have to understand the connection he is making. Look at the beginning of 21. 
It says baptism, which corresponds to this. And when you're studying the Bible, you see the word this, you need to pause and go, okay, what is he talking about here? What is the this he's pointing back to? And the this is what he just said at the end of verse 20. So go back up one verse. He tells us, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. That this is being brought safely through the water. And what is the water? Yes, it's the physical water. But remember that physical water was what God used to judge the millions on earth at the time. Water is the water of judgment. So we go to verse 21. Baptism, which now corresponds to this. It says, baptism, which now corresponds to being saved from judgment. Those are linked together. Baptism corresponds to being saved from, from judgment. Now, to correspond, it means it's a type of something else. It's a picture of something else. So what Peter is telling us here is your baptism is a picture for you. And for those who are watching, it's a reminder for you and a reminder for those who are watching of God's power to save us from God's judgment. Baptism is a powerful picture of God's power to save us from God's judgment. Yes, he has the power to judge the world, but he also has the power to save out from those, those whom he chooses. There's an important clarification here for us, because if you stop in the middle of this verse, you get some really bad teaching. Verse 20 says, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Do not put a period right there. Some people have done that. You end up with all sorts of bad teaching in other denominations over what this means. Baptism is not itself saving us. What is, why does Peter say it that way there? Because he's trying to make a comparison here, a strong picture for us of just as people were delivered from the flood in the time of Noah, we can be delivered from God's judgment now. It's a comparison of the saving and the saving here to show us God's power to save that announced. He was using really strong language to make sure we understand that God still can save even while he judges. But to make sure we don't stop there and put a period there, Peter clarifies that he's doing this. Notice the very next phrase. Baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. This immediately eliminates any thought that baptism can save you. This word body here means in the Greek is actually the word for flesh. That's the whole you, including your sinful nature. And the word here for dirt here is often used for sin in the Bible, often used for mortal filth. So when you read this, he's saying baptism saves you not as the removal of sin from your whole body, not as a removal of your sin nature, not as dealing with your sin problem. He's saying, in other words, getting wet in baptism does not remove any sin from you. What then does baptism do? Well, that's the very next phrase there. Rather, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, surprise, surprise here, scholars debate what the word appeal means. And there's two different perspectives on what appeal means here. And depending on who you listen to, they have different perspectives on what baptism's appeal is. Some people say this appeal is, an act, is to ask a request. The word here in the Greek language, which Peter wrote, this word appeal normally means to ask a request, especially to ask a request of someone in authority over you. They would say, okay, this appeal then is baptism is when you're publicly confessing before other people, I am asking God to forgive me of my sins. I'm asking God to do what I cannot do to cleanse myself from my sins so I do not face judgment. Now, other people go, no, 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 no. I know that's the way appeal is normally used, but appeal can also mean to make a pledge or to make a promise. So this is not about a prayer asking God to forgive you. Rather, they say this is you making a public promise to God that, God, I want to live for you the rest of my life. I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of living in my sin. God, I'm pledging today that I'm going to seek your grace to have a transformed life that pleases you. 
They would say it's much like a wedding. When a couple before other people promises to love each other for a lifetime, they're saying that's what this is telling you. Your baptism is you promising God in front of other people that you will live for him by your grace. Now, which is it? Is is our appeal, our public prayer to God, please forgive me? Or is our public pledge that, God, I'm going to live for you? This is what this is where I don't think we need to argue about it, friends. That suggests it's both. That perhaps Peter used a word that means both things because he means both things here in this. When you look at the rest of Scripture, both are very consistent with what it means to follow Christ. And we need God's power to do both. Friends, we just sang that in that last song we sang. I am not in my own strength going to follow God. I'm going to keep running my hell-bound race the rest of my life and go to hell very happy unless God arrests my attention and turns my heart. I need God's power to turn me from my hell-bound race. And so baptism is us saying, God, you've got to do what I can't do. Turn me, rescue me from my sin. But we also need God's power to change the way we live. We're continuing to be lost in our sin and live for ourselves unless God turns our heart affections to the things of him. And so I think this is both. We're appealing to God, saying, God, in your power, save me from my sin. And God, in your power, deliver me from sin's power in my life right now. So baptism becomes a beautiful picture of God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. For God to save us from the penalty of sin so that we now belong to him. God saving us from the power of sin so we're no longer enslaved to our sin. And then that hope of God ultimately saving us from the presence of sin when we're with him forever. Baptism is a comprehensive picture of this power of God to do what we cannot do, to save us from sin's penalty, to save us from sin's power, and one day to save us from the presence of sin. I love how Paul brings out in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. I love how he describes it. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now just pause there. He's talking about us being freed from the penalty of sin there. That when we trust in Christ, we're united to Christ. What we show when we are baptized, we're baptized into his death. And when he died, all of our sin was put on him. Our sin problem was dealt with. The penalty was paid for by Christ instead of with us. But there's more that baptism shows. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, this is might walk in newness of life. So baptism reminds us of the power of God to save us from that sin's grip on our life. We no longer have to live like we used to live. We have a new life because we belong to Christ. And then go into verse 5. If we've been united with him, with Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Baptism reminds us of our confidence that God will bring us to him forever, and we will have a resurrection like Christ where we get glorified bodies one day. Baptism reminds us of all of those truths that Peter simply sums up back in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what this is all about, is this picture of God's power bringing us to him now in forgiveness, bringing us closer to him day by day as he sanctifies us, and that eventual time he brings us to him in glorification where we see him forever with unveiled faces. So friends, so why is Peter talking about baptism here to prepare us for suffering. And here's the truth I want you to see from this text of why he brings up baptism to people who are struggling. And here it is. Baptism reminds us that our hope is found in God's power alone to save us from our sin and bring us to be with God forever. Friends, when we're suffering, and even when we're not suffering, we need to remember our hope is not in our circumstances. Changing our hope is not, and I just need to think a positive thought to get through this. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the power of God. 
The power of God we see on display in Jesus' resurrection and power over death. The same power of God we see over Satan and demons. The same power of God we see to judge the wicked. The same power of God we see in his sovereignty over everything. That same power is now at work in us, his people, to save us from the judgment we deserve. Which tells us, friends, in our sufferings, our sufferings are not because of his displeasure with us. Our sufferings are not the result of our sin. Our sufferings are because we live in a broken world and he's going to redeem them and use them because we are still loved by him. He saved us from the judgment. Our sufferings are not his judgment. The same power, though, is at work in us to save us from sin's power in our life. That includes the sins that come up so often when we suffer. Fear, worry, anxiety. Christ died to free us from those things and the same powers at work in us to bring us ultimately to glory with him forever. When there's no more sin, when there's no more suffering, no more trials, no more hardship, no more pain, no more sickness, these challenges of this life are temporary, and the power of God is at work to bring us to be with him forever. And to help us remember that in the midst of hardships, and it's hard to remember that, Peter says, think back to baptism. Remember what you were trusting. You were trusting in God's power to do what you could not do to come to him. That same power that changed your heart then is the same power we're holding you today, and it will take you to heaven eventually forever. So Peter reminds those who are suffering, your hope in the midst of your sufferings is in God's power alone to save you, to hold you, and to bring him bring you to him to be with forever. Now, friends, in that, again, is a warning for us. That is not a default hope for everyone who's here. If you've never trusted Christ, you've never experienced God's saving grace changing you, like the time of the people know where you're under God's wrath. And so this text is a call for you not to hope in something that's not yours yet. You must run to Christ to plead with him to be your Lord and Savior. And Peter points us back here to Noah. Friends, don't miss the fact there, day, there came the day before the rains even came that God closed the door of the ark. Go back and read that story. Don't miss the significance of that. God closed the door because judgment had come and it was too late. And at that point when the door closed, when the rains come, and people realized, oh my goodness, Noah was right. There was no way to open the door. God had already got to that point in his judgment. Friends, you are not promised tomorrow. So don't keep waiting, hoping that, well, one day I'll get around to considering this. If you don't know Christ Run to him today as your Lord and Savior. But friends, for those who know Christ, remember today the power of God that drew you to himself, that turns your heart from hating God to loving God is the power of God that will now sustain you through all the hardships of life and will eventually get you to eternity with him. And friends, for those who have that hope this morning, we're going to celebrate how we have that hope with communion. Because friends, as we remind ourselves often, this hope comes with a cost. The fact you and I can say God's power has saved me. The fact we can say I'm not bound to the power of sin in my life. The fact we can say I know I have eternity with God came with a cost. It came with the cost of Christ, God himself, coming, living a perfect life, fulfilling the law you and I break every day of our lives. He fulfilled it perfectly so when he went to that cross, he could be the sacrifice. He could take all the wrath I deserve and you deserve. He bore it in a moment on the cross so I don't have to bear it for eternity and there in that moment, all of his perfect righteousness was given to us. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate the fact that we have the hope of the gospel, that we have hope now in our sufferings and hope for eternity because of what Christ did freely for us. And so as we break the bread, we're reminded that Christ's body was broken on that cross so we could have forgiveness of sins. As we drink the juice, we're reminded that his blood was poured out because scripture is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so we take this to remember and to focus and to think about God's power. 
So friends, as we celebrate this morning, if you are in Christ, you are welcome to come take this. My friends, if you are not in Christ, if you are not sure you really have been saved by God and he's forgiven you your sins and you see evidence and change, friends, if there is no transformation in your life, don't hope in the fact I prayed a prayer I got baptized. If you are in Christ and have saving grace, there will be transforming grace. And so if there is no transforming grace in your life, please don't come take this today and put yourself in a place of God's judgment on this. This is for those who know God's saving grace, this evidence and his transforming grace in your life. If that is you it doesn't matter if you're a member here or not, you're welcome to come celebrate with us if you're trusting in God's grace alone to save you and to transform you. My friends, if you are not trusting in Christ and you're not sure, please just remain in your seat when we come to receive it. We're not gonna embarrass you. We're not gonna come find you, but I would encourage you to use this time to ask the Lord, God, I'm not sure I really believe in you. Please save me before it's too late and cry out to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins. But for those who are in Christ, you are welcome this morning to come celebrate with us. But what I want to challenge you to do is you're waiting to come forward or even once you receive the elements to stop and ponder the power of God. Take a few minutes to think about God's power that drew you to himself and turn the heart of one who's on a hellbound race to himself. Take a minute to think about that and celebrate that and to worship him for that and thank him for that. Take a minute to ask him to grow your understanding of his power over all things, including his power over your sufferings. To take him and just to rest in the fact that he is holding you and to celebrate that and to thank him that he is holding you because of what Christ has done. So if you're a follower of Christ, use this time in response to thinking about God's power to worship him and ask him to grow your heart towards him. Just a minute, I'm gonna pray. At that point, then our praise team is going to come forward to receive the elements. Then our ushers will come down to direct you. We're going to make two, two lines down the middle, so please keep two lines coming. You'll get the elements and return to your seat. There's no rush to take the elements. Take time to pray, to reflect, to celebrate, to worship the Lord, and then take them whenever you are ready. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that we are talking to the one who is all-powerful, who is sovereign over all things. Or what an incredible truth that is, that we do not serve a God who is weak, a God who is needy, a God who hopes to do things but just can't seem to get them to happen. We serve a God who is not only sovereign, the God who is all-powerful. Lord, I pray we'd rest in that today. We'd rest in your power that has saved us from the penalty of sin, that we would hope in your power that will transform us and change us from sin's power in our lives. And I pray today we would rejoice in the fact that you who have rescued us will save us from the presence of sin one day, when we are with you, seeing you with unveiled faces forever. And yet, Lord, we're reminded of the cost that came with, that we can only celebrate these things because, Lord Jesus, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And so I pray this morning we would not take lightly the salvation we have. Lord, we deserve to be like the people in the time of Noah. We deserve condemnation for our sin, and instead, you've given us nothing but grace. So let's be a people who rest in that and celebrate that this day, that we have received grace because of what Christ has done. I pray you'll be glorified as your people rejoice in that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Yeah, we'll stand as we continue to worship this song. Sing this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. In the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace.
Lord, we can sing, we turn our eyes to you. We ask for more grace this week, that all throughout this week, in the ups and downs, wherever we find ourselves, that we would turn our eyes to you and find, Lord Jesus, that you are enough this week. Have your way in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.